So today, uh, we come to the last chapter of Ezra, chapter 10, Ezra 10. And we are addressing a very familiar topic this morning. We're talking about sin. I'm I'm very familiar with that topic myself. I wrestle with it daily. And I'd say, just a guess, I'd say you do too. And what I want us to think about this morning is what do we do with our sins? And I mean that our plural as a church. There are corporate sins. And what do we do with our individual sins? My sins, the I sins, the me sins. How do we handle that? How do we differentiate those things? And what do we do with corporate sin? And what do we do with individual sin? Because here's the deal. Individual sin affects the corporate body. And a corporate mindset or a corporate sinning affects individuals. Every individual in the body. And what we're going to see in Ezra today is a roadmap, uh, a, a very clear roadmap of what to do with these sins and how to differentiate them. What we're going to do this morning, I'm going to read the entirety of Ezra chapter 9, which was the prayer that Ezra prayed about these known sins. And we saw it three weeks ago. Um, I was gone and we had Resurrection Sunday and now this Sunday. So we were three weeks ago, so it would be good to reflect and remember this prayer uh, and these actions of Ezra from Re- Ezra. I keep wanting to say Romans. I don't know why. Uh, that's a long time ago, right? So if you would stand, and we're going to read Ezra chapter 9 in its entirety to remind ourselves of where we've been and to prepare ourselves for where we're going. And we remind ourselves, corporately and individually, that what we are about to hear, see, are the very words of God. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves." Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, And never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? 
O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let me pray. God, we sang and we believe that justice has been satisfied. And we thank you for that, God, because justly we deserve punishment. Because of our sins, because of my sins, I deserve your wrath. I deserve death, hell, and the grave for eternity. But you have granted us a little reviving in our days. And you have chosen to not hold our sins against us. God, as we look at this passage today, may we understand the greatness of our sins, convict us of our sins, and revive us, God, according to your justice, as you meted out your wrath upon your Son, and He bore the penalty for my sins. May we never be those who regard sin as something light and airy, God. But as we look into your word today, may we see the weight of it and what we should do with it so that you might be glorified in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Man, chapter 9 is just... <laughs> whew, that's good stuff. So we move into chapter 10, which again is the last chapter in Ezra. Hopefully, Lord willing, next week we will move into Nehemiah. But Ezra finishes with a flourish, I think. And as we reflect on Ezra's prayer from chapter 9, and as we move into chapter 10, I want you to think about, I want you to prepare your heart with, how would you have responded if you were Ezra? How would you have responded if you were the people who heard what he was praying? Because we're going to see the reaction of the people of God. And note, these are the people of God who are sinning willfully, how would you respond to what you're hearing? Because that's what we're going to look at. So chapter 10, verse 1 is where we'll start, obviously. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So in the prayer that we just looked at there in Ezra 9, we saw that Ezra was doing his praying around the time of the evening sacrifice. Now as such, it would have been a busy time around the temple. And therefore, there would have been a lot of people coming and going. And what we see here is that Ezra was doing this praying before the house of God and publicly weeping and casting himself down. So, combine a lot of people with one guy being very animated in this crowd, and it makes for some attention being paid by this large crowd. Just get that picture in your head. Add to that the fact that this, was, that this guy who was publicly demonstrating was Ezra. Ezra was big deal. He had been installed by the king of Persia to do what he did, and he did that very well. That made him a public figure well known by most of the Jews if you add all that together, we have a perfect recipe for Ezra being seen, heard, and gawked at. So it says that a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. And it says that they, the people, also wept bitterly. Ezra's demonstration, his emotion, and his prayer had deeply affected them And they were weeping as they heard and as they saw Ezra praying and mourning. It's quite a scene, isn't it? They come for the evening sacrifice, doing their daily thing, their daily religious thing, and they're confronted with grief. Grief over sin. Their sin. Not Ezra's sin. Ezra praying, weeping, confessing our sins and the people seeing, hearing, 
and responding by doing the same. Verse 2. Things get interesting. We'll read 2 through 4. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. We're going to go through five, I'm sorry. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Woo. So in the midst of this, this guy named Shechaniah comes up to talk to Ezra. Now we don't know a whole lot about this guy, but if you've got your Bibles there, if you go down to verse 26, you see a list of those who are named as having participated in the sins that will be covered shortly. And it says this, Of the sons of Elam, Madaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. And who did it say that Shechaniah was? Go back to verse 2. Shechaniah the son of Jehiel. So this Jehiel mentioned in verse 26, who we will see in a little bit, is one of those who has participated in these sins, who has intermarried with the peoples of the land. His son Shechaniah stands up. And Shechaniah is not mentioned as one of those who participated in these sins. But somebody's son who had participated in the sin stands up. That's who Shechaniah is. He isn't mentioned in the list of those who sinned, but his dad and five of his uncles are. So put that in its proper perspective if you can. Shechaniah sees Ezra's public display of grief and confession, and into his mind comes his dad and his uncles as having done what Ezra was all tore up about. And do you remember what they had told Ezra had happened back in chapter 9? They had intermarried with the peoples of the land that they had come back to inhabit, which was expressly forbidden in the Mosaic Law. So this sin that is being addressed is as close as Shechaniah's own family. Now, we have no indication that Shechaniah had participated in this sin, but he had seen it up close and personal in his own life. So he says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Now the we here is corporate in nature, but for Shechaniah it was not only corporate, it was his family. It was his direct family. And the question that I have that I don't know, I have an inkling, a direction. My question is, was this his mom? Had his dad married a foreign wife and had him? Was he the result of an intermarriage? I don't know for sure. But it surely could be the case. His father had certainly married a foreign wife. We saw that in 26. We'll see it again when we get down there. Now, was this his only wife, his father's only wife? Was it a second wife or a remarriage after he'd been widowed? Don't know. We don't have that information. But we know that Shechaniah was directly affected by the sins that are being confessed by Ezra and now by him as well. And that's important because this sin affected the whole group of people, not just those who had committed it themselves. But it wasn't hopeless, right, Shechaniah? He goes on after the confession, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And what is that hope? Verse 3, let us make, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Wow. That's quite a statement, y'all. I love this statement. Shechaniah, in the midst of the reality of their sins, our sins, calls for the people to make a covenant. 
And a covenant's not something that people enter into lightly. It's a solemn binding agreement. He calls them to make a covenant with God. And I need you to please, please, please understand that. The pervasive sins of the people do not lead God's people to despair, but to action, to address God directly. Get that. As God's chosen people, our sins are to move us toward God, not away from Him. That's the difference between conviction and guilt. Guilt says you should not approach God. Guilt says you cannot approach God. Conviction says we must approach God. So Shechaniah calls for the people of God to make a covenant with God to put away all these wives and their children. Again, was he talking about his mom? Was he talking about himself? I don't know. And hear that. To put away. And that infers divorce. That includes separation from. Get them out of your midst. It's what Don read this morning in 2 Corinthians. What fellowship has light with darkness or Christ with Belial? Do not be unequally yoked. Get rid of these people out of your midst, your wives and your children. Put them away. Not in another room of the house. Separate from them. Separate your life from their lives. Shechaniah is calling for God's people to physically separate themselves from foreigners in their midst if they were married to them or if they were their offspring. Now, get a hold of that. Get them out of your house. Get them out of your life. Your wives, your children, if they are a result of the sin of intermarrying. That is bold action. Now, it almost sounds mean, doesn't it? But let me say here, sin calls for drastic, maybe even seemingly irrational actions. More about that in application. But back to Shechaniah. He's not doing this on a whim or just talking out of his head. Look at the rest of his statement. According to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So he's seeking feedback from Ezra, the leading man in this area, and of the rest of those who are responsible to understand and implement the law of God. He's seeking their feedback according to their study and understanding of what God has said about all of this. And then he charges Ezra directly with a call to action that only Ezra can take. Now get a hold of this. Here's Shechaniah talking to Ezra. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Huh. (laughs) I like this guy, Shechaniah. He's bold, he's upright, he's wise. And he tells Ezra that this may be Ezra's for such a time as this moment. And he challenges Ezra to take up the task and then reminds Ezra that he and his people are with Ezra. Now it's one thing to look at somebody and say, well, looks like you got some stuff to do. And it's quite another to say, this task is yours alone, but we are with you to help and support you in it. Think Lord of the Rings, right? Frodo, this task is yours alone, but you have my sword, you have my shield, you have my axe, you have my bow. This task is yours alone, but we are with you and we are for you and we will support you in whatever you say. And then he says to Ezra, looking him in the eye, be strong and do it. Oh, that we would challenge and encourage each other this way, eye to eye, heart to heart. It's what the people of God do what they're supposed to do. And then of course there's Ezra. How does he receive all of this? Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Ezra gets up and says, all right, y'all, let's get busy. 
and he makes the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that what had been said would be done. And they agree and they make the oath. So now what? Verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. He's not done being sad yet. He had spent the bulk of the day publicly weeping and praying and confessing. Now it's time for private fasting and mourning before he set forth on the task of what all of this is to look like. He spent the night in the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. And I don't know what that means. I couldn't find anything that many things specific about that. Sorry. So he's in a room. And it seems like a picture of a purposeful separation for the purpose of preparation. Separate yourself to prepare yourself. Ezra fasted and mourned all night over the faithlessness of the exiles. And this could seem like he was arrogant and accusatory, focusing on their faithlessness. But we've already seen his inclusion of himself in his prayers as he confessed our sin to God. So he's simply privately grieving the presence of sin in the people of God, of which he is a part, part of the people of God. A full night of fasting and mourning, after a full day of public grief and prayer. So this just might be a big deal, right? So now... What to do? Verses 7 and 8. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Huh. Yeah. However it came to be, after this day and night of mourning, a proclamation was made. And that proclamation had been agreed upon by the officials and elders of the people of Israel. And that proclamation said that all the returned exiles, all, are to assemble at Jerusalem. And if they did not come within three days, that all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So that looks like this. Hey, we're having a very important meeting. And if you don't come... We're going to seize your property and excommunicate you from the congregation. Sound heavy? You bet you it's heavy. You figured that fly today? So we had our informational slash vision meeting Wednesday. What if we had said, Hey, we're having this important meeting, and if you don't come, we're going to take your house and your stuff, and you can never come back to church? Yeah, maybe not. But that's exactly what was going on here. Exactly. The corporate nature of this made it absolutely vital that all the exiles were to come and answer for what was going on. Again, get the scope of this. All of them mandated, be here or you're no longer a part of us. And we get your land too. It's hugely important. They could not overstate how important this was. And the leaders wanted to make sure that everybody understood that. Listen to me. When the stakes are this high, communication has to be urgent. And consequences have to be proportionately doled out if you don't adhere to what's being communicated. Well, we don't like to hear that, do we? Did it work? Yep. Verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Yeah, it worked. As was mandated, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. And then this, it was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. Let me put that in perspective in our calendar, okay? It was their month, Kislev, which equates to our month, December. Which is the cold and rainy season for them. Well guys, can we not put this off till like 
spring, which never comes in West Virginia, by the way? No. Within three days, you be here or you lose everything. Now, I reckon they probably traveled in the rain three days to get there. We wake up sometimes and see the clouds like, yeah, I don't think I'm going today. And we see the results of that cold and rainy season directly. It says, They sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Now again, get this picture in your head. I don't have a number here, but here are all the men of Judah and Benjamin sitting in the open square of the city before the house of God, trembling. When's the last time you trembled over anything? We're too light and fluffy in our culture to tremble over something. We're too comfortable to be cold enough to tremble. And here they sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of what they were there for and the rain that they were sitting in the midst of. Can you get a hold of this? Can you get a hold of the gravity of this? Not only had they come on short notice, but they sat after their travels out in the open, rainy December air. It's a Guns N' Roses song, right? Nothing lasts forever. And we both know hearts can change. Nothing holds a candle. Oh, it's November. In the cold November. I thought it was December rain. Sorry. That's a tangent I didn't mean to go off on. That's not in the notes. Cold November rain. Sorry. Sorry, Axel. I misquoted you there. (laughs) And it's easy to think of them trembling in the rain, but again, it was not just the rain that made them tremble, it was their sin. What a picture. Verses 10 and 11. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Now imagine being Ezra and seeing this great congregation of the men of Judah and Benjamin trembling in the rain and then standing up and addressing them about some of their wives and their kids and saying, put them away. No big deal, right? Wow! But he does stand up and address the issue at hand because it's a God matter, it's a sin issue, and that makes it an imperative to address. There probably are people out there who enjoy addressing sin in the camp, but I can't imagine what that's like. to stand in the midst of God's people and point out their sins is a tough thing to do. But there's grace for that too, it seems. And Ezra minces no words at all. You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Well, why don't you just get to it there, Ez, right? He doesn't hem-haul around and try to couch things in political correctness or apologies for the inconvenience of the rain. He points the finger of the law of God squarely in their face and says, You have done this. You have broken faith and done what you wanted for your pleasure with a blatant disregard for the law and the people of God. You have brought guilt upon the rest of us. That's a different tone than his confession and prayer to God, isn't it? There's still a corporate nature to what he's saying, but now it's more particular and specific. Engaging the individuals who have done the things that have brought the guilt on the rest of the group. And that has to be done too, doesn't it? So what are they to do? Now then, make confession to the Lord the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. 
Again, note the specificity of what he's telling them. Nothing ambiguous or accommodating here. Confess to God what you have done. Do His will by separating from the people of the land and your foreign wives. Now can you imagine the shockwaves that went through the shivering Jews in that moment? I would guess they knew what the meeting was about, but I can't imagine them that they were thinking, oh shoot man, I'm going to have to leave my family after today. But that's exactly what Ezra said. Exactly what they heard, because it couldn't be heard any differently. And that's exactly what they had to decide if they were going to be obedient to or not. Are you going to separate yourself from these people? Or are you going to continue in your sin and stay with your wives and children that you have sinned and brought guilt upon the congregation of Israel with? So Ezra did what had to be done and he did it well. Now how will it be received? 12 through 15. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task. Oh, yeesh. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Asahel and Jeziah the son of Tikvah opposed this and Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levites supported them. So the congregation in response rebelled and said, Mind your own business, Ezra. You ain't the boss of us. Who do you think you are? Is that what happened? No. That would seem like a more natural response, wouldn't it? And that's just it. That would be a natural response. But a supernatural response is one that is sensitive to the conviction of God and says, You're right. I have done this. There's no justification. There's no explanation. There's no asking for compromise about the sins. But all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so we must do as you have said. Now imagine that chorus raising up in the midst of the rain. It is so. It is so. We must do as you have said. Now they didn't do this because Ezra was really clever or good at negotiating terms. No. They did this because he was clear and they knew that he was right biblically. And they, in their sin, said that God is right in what He was requiring of them. And then they do get into some negotiating as far as how all of this is going to shake out. Back in verse 13. 13, 14, 15. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Again, heavy rain. This is not a light shower, y'all. It's, it's raining hard. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our, of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So yeah, Ezra, you're right, but this isn't just a couple of rogues doing pesky things that get on our nerves. The people are many. Oh, there's this heavy rain to deal with. We can't just stand here and try to do this quickly. It's not going to just take a couple of days because we have greatly transgressed in this matter. We have greatly transgressed in this matter. So they propose, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So they're saying, address the leaders from each area, then have those who have done these things come at appointed times to answer for themselves individually over a period of time. 
And let's carry it through until God's anger is spent and we've addressed it all in everyone individually. Well, that makes sense. And everyone agrees except a couple of guys. I don't know what's up with them. Jonathan and Tikva didn't like this. And their buddies Meshulam and Shabbatai supported them in their disagreement. But guess what? Disagree if you want. This is happening. The plan is to move forward as it was proposed. And then we see how it all shakes out. 16 and 17. Then, they, then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. The plan works. Ezra selected men who were heads of the fathers' houses, and it took them three months from the first day of the tenth month until the first day of the first month. Tenth month, eleventh month, twelfth month. Three months spent going through the leaders of the people, figuring out who among the clans had married foreigners and addressing the leaders of those clans along with the offenders one at a time. Face to face with those who have sinned by marrying foreign women. Three months of hearing these men talk about their wives and children, who they were, where they were from, how many, who, what, and why it was all wrong. Three months. And then they finally talked to the last one. The congregation was right. This did take a while. Three months. Face to face. Tell me what you've done. Saw this lady. She's pretty. She was real nice. We started getting along real well. And I knew she was a foreigner. But God wants me to be happy, right? Surely God would understand. My last wife passed away. And this lady comforted me and gave me pleasure and gave me joy. And it was good. And we had four kids and they're lovely. And they've got good Jewish names. And oh no, we don't do exactly what the law says. We kind of do some of what my wife brought into this and her religion. But God, God understands. Doesn't He? You must put her away. And your four children. Next. Three months. Mm. And this wasn't just some foreigners or some some outliers who lived out on the edge of the area of Jerusalem. No, it wasn't just them. Some of the leaders. Some of the leaders had done this. Look at this, 18 through 22. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emmer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Haram, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pasher, Elioni, Messiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elasa. That's a tough one for me, y'all. Elasa. So they too, these priests, pledged to put away their wives and made a guilt offering of a, of a ram of the flock, which is prescribed by Leviticus 6.6, 6, which they would surely know, because <laughs> they're priests. And it wasn't just the priests, but the Levites too. And we're going to finish the chapter reading the list of these names, the names of the Levites, names of real people having committed real sins in a real time. Here we go. Bear with me. And of Israel, of the sons of... Well, I've already read some of them. The sons of Perosh, Remiah, Isaiah, Malchijah, Mizamin, Eliezer, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. Of the sons of Elam, we've already heard about these guys, right? Madaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, 
Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zab, Zabad, and Aziza. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehoanan, Haniah, Zabdi, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Malak, Adiah, Jashub, Shael, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Adna, Kalal, Benaiah, Masiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Banui, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Haram, Eleazar, Ishijah, Malchijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashem, Madaniah, Matata, Hakuna Matata, <laughs> you can't help it. Sometimes you need a little levity in the midst of this. Zabad, Elephalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shemai. Of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Bediah, Chalui, Vaniah, Merimoth, Eliashab, Madaniah, Matanai, Jesu, of the sons of Benui, Shimi, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, okay, Machnadebi, Shashai, Sherai, Azrael, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. I like Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaiah. All of these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. All of these married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Sounds innocuous, but imagine the shame and the grief of these 94 Levites. God's people, God's servants, those who worked in the temple. Imagine their shame and grief as they determined what they needed to do in order to put their wives and their children away. Real men with real wives and real children who had one choice. You either obey or you disobey God by no longer living their lives together. We can't be married anymore and kids, I love you, but I can't be your daddy anymore. Wow. No words here. But don't feel too sad for these men. It was their sins that brought them to this place. And God cannot allow sin to run free in His people. For their good and for His glory. So now what do we do with this? How do we apply this? I think a better question is, how could we not apply this? Three T's for application. Time, tell, turn. Time, tell, turn. First application point is time. There is a time for individual confession, and there is a time for corporate confession. And this is probably the trickiest part of dealing with our sins. There's a time for individual awareness of sins, and there's a time for corporate awareness of sins. We'll look at this a little more in the next application point, but too often, here comes the hammer, y'all. We want to misdirect our sins and blame the church or someone else in the church for our sins. Corporate sins are sins that the church as a whole are committing. Pride, arrogance, looking down on other churches or congregations, failure to address the poor, straying from the Word of God. These need to be we and us confessions. And there's certainly a time for that. And hopefully, it's the leaders that will blaze that trail. This makes me remember Shechaniah who owned the corporate guilt of the intermarrying, even though he hadn't done it himself. Shared conviction is a corporate mindset. And corporate confession is not about pointing out the shortcomings of others in the church. That's just grumbling in your own tents about others. And that is an individual sin. And we have to know when our sin is about I and me so that we can address our individual sins that way. 
In our passage today, the corporate nature of the sin had to be addressed by individuals owning their own sins. The group was guilty and the way to overcome the guilt and the wrath that came with it was for individuals to fess up one at a time. And again, it was up to the leaders to facilitate this process. The leaders said, we are guilty, and then sat down with the individuals to work on their sins one by one for three months. What a painful and beautiful process. Time. Is it time to address my individual sin or is it time for us to address our corporate sins? That's hard. But that leads us to point two, which is tell. There comes a time when we have to confess. We have to name our sins. I am not a believer or follower of the name it and claim it group of people. I believe God wants me to have a Corvette, so in the name of Jesus, I'm going to claim that Corvette. That is hogwash. But what I do believe is that we have to name and claim our sins. We have to confess by name our sins. We have to speak what sins we have committed if we're to move on from them. We have to say like Shechaniah and the Jews in Ezra 10 that we have broken faith with our God. And it is so just as you have said. And we need to confess our sins to who? To each other. Within the church. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. We have an obligation not to point out the sins of other people, but to confess to others our sins. And our confession is about us, our sin, not you and your sin. Not somebody else but me. I can't tell you how many couples have been in therapy and have told me that everything wrong in their relationship is their spouse's fault. More often than not, I read them this Tim Keller quote. If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in this marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. This applies to our discussion of confession of our sins. We have to own our own sins, not blame other people's sins for our problems, especially within the church. Let me challenge you with this, Christian. And again, I'm coming with both barrels. Other people and their sins are not your main problem. Your sins are your main problem. My sins are my main problem. And I can blame everybody and I can blame my circumstances. I can blame my past and not be wrong, but it's not going to be effective. I have to confess my own sins to you and ask you to pray for me. There comes a time of confession or we will never move on from our individual sins or our corporate sins. Stop blaming other people for your sin. James says it this way in James 4, 1-4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that other people are rude? Is it not this, that other people are just not compassionate? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. God's people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul would say it this way in Galatians 5.15, But if you bite and devour one another, 
Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Too many times our confession sounds like this. I know I said things I shouldn't have said or I acted in a way that I shouldn't have acted, but he. I know I shouldn't have, but she. And in doing so, we deflect the blame from ourselves and onto someone else. Take ownership of your sins. Take ownership of your attitude, your words, your actions, your selfishness, your pride, your apathy, your finger pointing, and trust God to convict others of their sins. Confess your sins, not other people's, because ultimately you can't repent for someone else, which is the last point. Time, tell, turn. This is the goal. The goal is repentance. We have to change the way we think about our sin. We literally have to change our minds or we will never forsake it. As long as you're blaming someone else, you'll never forsake your own sin. You'll justify it for the rest of your life and you will be miserable. But when we repent... The biblical word is metanoia. It means to change your mind. It means to take the old mind out and to put a new mind in. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Change your mind. And if we don't change our minds, we will never forsake our sins. We'll cling to it and think it's precious. When in reality, it's a cancer that is slowly, silently killing us separating us from the rest of the body, separating us from our families. But you don't understand. I don't. You're right, I don't. And I don't have to. Unless we repent and change our minds, we think the pleasure we feel is our greatest good or maybe the displeasure that we feel. Some people like to be miserable. And unless we repent and change our minds, we forget and we deny that God and His glory are our greatest good. John Piper puts it this way. He says, Our desire for sin is rooted in this. We don't treasure the glory of God as supremely desirable over all things. We let the darkness of the lie persuade us that one illicit pleasure or another is more to be desired than God. In the darkness, we fondle the smooth ebony brooch hanging around our neck, not knowing that in the light we would see it as a cockroach. We think the tarantula is a fuzzy toy. We think the lion is a pet and the sound of the rattlesnake is a castanet. That's what it means to live in the dark where God is less to be desired than our sinful pleasure. End of quote. These sins that you are committing aren't smooth, fuzzy pets. They're dangerous, joy-stealing, holiness-killing, church-killing enemies. So what do we do? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 29-30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And this refers to what we referenced earlier about taking drastic life-altering actions to address your sins, to repent of them. These Jews in Ezra 10 put away their wives and children because their whole relationship was founded on sin and disobedience. It's a shame, but it's a shame for the collateral damage it caused to the wives and the children. The men who married them knew better and should have never acquiesced to doing what they did. And listen to me, when you come to the point of repenting of your sins, changing your mind, turning away from them, when the drastic measures are taken, yes, it can cause others problems. And that's hard and it's a shame, but you can't let the fear of consequences keep you in a sinful pattern. Maybe your lustful eye needs torn out. Cancel your cable. Cancel your satellite subscription if it's causing you to sin. But Daddy, we love our TV shows. 
Sorry kids, daddy can't go on sinning. This has got to go. Oh, now you're just being legalistic is what you're thinking. Am I? Was it legalistic for these Jews to keep the law after acknowledging their sins? Is it legalistic to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord? If so, then let's get a little bit more legalistic. Not to save ourselves, not to get God to like us more, but in order to forsake our sins, then yes, let's trend that way. Oh, we don't want to be legalistic. Like that's the worst sin of all. I'd rather err on that side and pursue holiness than to say, well, you know, I don't want people thinking that I'm going overboard. Filter your internet, for goodness sake. Censor your movies. Get a blinking flip phone. Do what needs done in order to call sin, sin, and turn away from it. And again, not pointing out someone else's sins and telling them to do it, but I, me, doing what the Holy Spirit of God convicts me to do for my freedom, my holiness, and my joy's sake. Hebrews 12, 12-14 is where we'll finish. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me read that verse again. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. My sin's not that big a deal. It's not hurting anybody else. that's true, I've wasted an hour of your life. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is what time, telling, and turning are all about. You doing your business with God so we can all be at peace with Him and each other and walk in holiness, knowing that no one can dwell in God's presence without holiness, both the holiness given by Him as a free gift and that holiness which is realized in our everyday lives through the confession of and repentance of sin. Your sin is a big deal. And oh, we love grace. And we rightly love grace. But have we erred too far on the side of grace that we don't address our sins? My brethren, these things ought not be this way. We need to weep. We need to take a couple months and take inventory of our sins and confess them to God, confess them to each other, and repent of them so that we might walk in holiness, knowing that without holiness, I will not see the Lord. This is not about me earning my salvation. It's about me walking out the holiness that God has given me as a free gift through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. These were the people of God in Ezra 10. And they had to confess their sins and they had to repent of their sins individually and corporately. And so do we. Let's pray. God, this is not fun. And I'm more and more convinced every day that you're not concerned with me having fun. You are concerned with me being holy. That is what is best for me and that is what is going to glorify you the most. So God, help me to address my sins. Help us to address our sins. Holy Spirit, we ask for the gift of conviction. 
God, that we might tremble before you. Knowing that you are the lifter of our heads and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But God, in between those two things, we groan and we moan, not even knowing what we should pray for. Help us, God, to tremble because of our sins. Give us mouths to confess. Give us hearts to receive those confessions from other people. And give us lives that pray for and prop up other people instead of accusing them and justifying our own sins because of them. It is so. We have greatly transgressed in these matters. So convict us and heal us, God, as only you can. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay in it with us if you can.